0: This episode is sponsored by Makersite. Do you still commission consultancies to do your product's lifecycle assessments? It doesn't scale, fails to meet your reporting goals, and takes months? With Makersite, you can switch from months to minutes with their AI-powered LCA engine built for scale and accuracy. For more information, please visit makersite.io. And this episode is sponsored by Sphera. Begin your environmental, social, and governance journey, also known as ESG, to drive your organization toward a sustainable future. Learn more at spira.com. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Heather Clancy greeting you today from northern New Jersey. Joel McCower is in Europe. We'll talk about that more next week. But he is at an initial gathering of our new executive network there. On this week's edition, what does Dolly Parton have to do with climate tech startups? What inspired green building pioneer Kath Williams? And what the heck is nature tech? We've got answers this week on GreenBiz 350. it's September 16th, 2022. Welcome to another edition of GreenBiz 350. Joining me today as co-host is climate tech reporter Leah Garden, who is actually relocating today to Arlington, Virginia. Leah, thanks for dropping by the podcast. Oh gosh, you know, you you and Joel might have to have a competition on the pun front. Um, you are new to us. Um, you're also new to this beat, this climate tech beat. And I, I was um, really excited when we first met and um, to hear about the things that drove you to be interested in this particular position. But I wanted to ask you for our listeners' uh, point of, of view and for their frame of reference. What inspires you? What what what? get you going on this, this particular coverage on this particular beat area?
1: You know, that's a good question. I have thought about that for years. Um, But really growing up and seeing the climate crisis become less of a hypothetical and more of a, this is an actual crisis. As I've just watched it progress, I realized that just changing our ways was not going to solve the problem. And so I started doing a lot of research into, you know, how can we help ourselves along? What can we do to help humanity continue business as usual but not business as usual all at the same time? And that's where climate tech really shines because it touches every single subsector. So if I wanted to see how ag was going to move forward in a way that was different than what we've already been doing, there was stuff there to look at if I wanted to look at, you know, how, what is the energy sector doing and how are we moving forward while also keeping people able to drive from one place to the other and not inconvenience them. There was something to look at. So it's, it's always just been really interesting to me, all the diversity, all of the potential and I'm excited that I get to do it full-time now with GreenBiz. I'm excited to have you here. Tell us
0: a little bit more about what you did before this. Uh, help our, leader, our listeners just learn a little bit more about you.
1: It is a winding road. I will start about three quarters down that road so that, you know, this podcast ends today. Uh, but essentially, I graduated from grad school from American University with a master's in sustainability management in December of 2020 you know, the absolute best time to be unemployed and in debt with grad school tuition. And I didn't know how I wanted to move forward. I just know that I wanted anybody who's not completely immersed in the climate sector understand what they can do to make a difference, even if it feels small. And I just started writing. I started writing and freelancing, and I was lucky enough to get a fellowship. That really helped. And I freelanced for about a year um all throughout the pandemic which was great because you don't need to leave your house for that uh and then heather you posted in the covering climate now slack group about a potential job at GreenBiz, and i applied you got back to me so fast and it was fate.
0: I am so excited that you found us, that we found you, and that we are now together, and I think it makes good sense for us to talk a little bit about some of your initial work. So let's go over to the week in review, and actually I'll kind of call it the month in review, because we're going to talk about more than uh, just just this week's story for you. Leah, let's talk stories. You just published the third article in a four-part series about climate tech startups started and fronted by female entrepreneurs. What was the inspiration for that storyline? What what got you down that
1: path? That's a good question. So earlier this summer, I wrote a piece about just the state of climate tech funding and investing in 2022. You know, a very run-of-the-mill piece. And within my research... Some really depressing data about the number of female and co-female led startups receiving funding and that's deals and actual capital investment. And both of those numbers were so depressingly low compared to what all of the startups founded by men were getting. And I, I just couldn't sit by and not talk about it, but I wanted to talk about it in a way that made sense for my climate tech beat. So when I found out that we were going over to California in August this year for a big Green Biz company get-together, I thought, what better time to take advantage of my Silicon Valley locale and tour all of these incredible female-founded, co-founded, or even not founded, but just women being in positions of power. Uh, So so far, we've heard about living
0: carbon, which is genetically modifying poplar trees so that they sequester what industrial metals and emissions uh sun folding which makes solar trackers that help panels capture more sunshine and this week you've tackled 12 which is turning carbon dioxide into chemicals found in products ranging from sunglasses to detergent to fuel what should we know about these companies you could pick any of them all of them i just want to hear a little bit more about um some of the the key takeaways for, from you
1: the first key takeaway is that I saw so much happiness in all of these companies because I was lucky enough to get that offsite visit.
0: And- What do you mean happiness? I'm sorry, happiness, you mean just the people were- Employee
1: happiness. Everyone there was jiving and smiling and Mm -hmm. so much productivity because they're all labs, right? Labs or or, um, wherever engineers do their engineering. (laughs) Clearly I had an arts background, (laughs) arts and sciences, not so much of the sciences. but so that was my first takeaway that I wasn't expecting. You know, I had done a lot of prep for what are their missions and how are their supply chains impacted by the the crisis that was going on. But I didn't expect to be struck by the, just the employee happiness, and I really should have been because that's how that's what my sister works in. But it just never it never struck my mind as something to keep an eye out for. So that was a surprise, and I am going to decide that the correlation was because of the women in power in these places. There's no data to back that up. I've just decided it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Hopefully that's okay.
0: (laughs) It's a a gut thing, I guess.
1: (laughs) (laughs) My executive decision skills. So what else? Um, So other than that, they each have a unique vibe for all of them. So when I got to Living Carbon, Everything was very repurposed. All of their furniture was secondhand. They had really fun wallpaper of trees everywhere, which makes sense because they literally grow genetically modified trees. Um, and they were just so excited to get the t- to get to tell their stories to somebody who not only is just interested in their science, in their product and what they're hoping to change, but who's interested in their perspective as women in a field mostly dominated by men. Um, they were, They felt for them, but to me it felt like it was just a very comfortable environment of understanding that it was just total allyship in that room, which is mm-hmm. not always the case.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Gotta ask, what inspired the Dolly Parton theme for the series? <laughs> I mean, other than Dolly just being a national treasure, I love <laughs> Dolly. 9 to 5 is one of my favorite movies. I watched Grace and Frankie, and Dolly, obviously, spoiler alert for everybody who hasn't watched the series finale of Grace and Frankie, she shows up at the end, and that was a fun reveal that I watched right before I decided to start this series. Mm -hmm. And for my sci-fi people, on the Orville, Seth MacFarlane's Star Trek-esque show, She is literally a God for one of the alien cultures and they worship her. This is a female majority culture and they worship Dolly Parton as their God. And I was like, why isn't that our culture? Why aren't we worshiping (laughs) Dolly as a God for female rights everywhere, women and equality. And that's why she got a shout out. She doesn't actually do much with climate tech.
0: (laughs) Okay. No. Okay. Well, so just, just to step back and, and you do have one more, um, piece, which we'll see in in next week, Um, just stepping back, you know, what have you learned from your encounters with these companies?
1: um, You know, and kind of, kind of, what's next? I've learned that women can do anything. And Mm -hmm. that they are eager to pave the path for more women to walk down. Mm -hmm. That was the number one takeaway that I had was that all of these women that I spoke to, We're just so excited to get to show other women that their dreams of running and founding or being the chief science officer or CTO are totally possible. And sometimes you just need to see someone, not necessarily who looks like you, but just has that very basic similarity as you in a position where you didn't think you could necessarily get. And that was just incredible. Mm-hmm. and what was your second question yeah, well, I got caught up hints? in the female awesomeness oh I
0: <laughs> so <do> I actually <laughs> any hints about what's next I, I I actually think you've been pitched by plenty of people that want to be profiled uh in the future uh any hints about where you're going to go with this next
1: I'll give a hint so I've mostly I have not mostly 100% focused on startups and I also wanted to get the other side of that perspective which is the venture capital side and who is mm-hmm. founding these startups and how do we go about increasing uh engagement for female startups from the funding side and that's that's my hint and i'm not going to tell you who or what okay, but if so, you like investing <laughs> this is for you <laughs>
0: okay we'll watch we'll watch for that next week and also look for the 12 story this week um which is up on the site uh what else should we talk about leah
1: uh, well, you just published this incredible nature tech piece. Do you want to tell us about it? I have so many questions, but I'd love to hear your initial thoughts about writing the piece. What was the most mind boggling part? What did you look at that you were like, I didn't even know this could be part okay. of the future. So let's
0: let, let, me just give a thumbnail for the listeners. Um, there is a, uh, piece of climate tech, a subsegment, segment, if you will, called nature tech. And the focus is on technologies, applied and in information technologies that could basically help per- perpetuate nature-based solutions to climate change. So it's a pretty broad category. The, um, there's a white paper out this week from Nature for Climate, which is a coalition with pretty much all of the usual suspects, a lot of nonprofits. Um, and they're basically trying to draw attention in this category. So... My guess is that pretty much every listener here on, on GreenBus B50 is going to be like, ah, OK, that's nature tech. They will have he- heard of some of these companies. So let me just describe the, se- the four sub-segments, if you will. Um, one is ecosystem and biodiversity monitoring mechanisms. So like, think about all these satellite uh, networks, like Planet Labs, which is monitoring things like regenerative agriculture and the impact, or Pachama, which which monitors forests and how? And there's there's lots and lots of people and um, uh, entrepreneurs in this particular category. I'm going to actually jump ahead to the other two that are kind of related to that. One is verification approaches. So like a lot of blockchain related startups or artificial intelligence related startups that help sort of take that information, that data that's being collected by those monitoring satellites, and then automate it and draw conclusions and and also um, verify things like, yes, this forest sequestered this much carbon in this, and this particular section. And these credits, if you want to, um, create them based on this project are going to be good for this many years, you know, so there's a lot of verification that needs to happen. And then also like, how do you create the marketplaces for this? So once you do have that data collected and analyzed, how do you help, uh, buyers engage with with that information and and actually make purchases based on that data and, and that that trusted data, if you will. So those are all sort of related. The most fascinating p- part of this one for me was the deployment area. And and um, we started. I started the piece with a, a reference to a uh, Michael Strahan skincare line that is using a new substance from Evolved by Nature. Now Evolved by Nature is a biotech startup. And what they're doing is they're using natural silk protein to basically replace petrochemicals in things like shaving cream or moisturizer and so forth. So they're they have a deal now with Michael Strahan, which who is um whos who has got a skincare line based on their technology. That is pretty mind-boggling. Like number one, that like how do you even make that extrapolation, like silkworms to petrochemicals. And how do you, you know, how do you discover that that could be a, a thing? Your living carbon startup, one of the people that that you wrote about, is a deployment version of Nature Tech. It, they're taking trees and they're making them more capable of of being a solution to climate change. So this this category is particularly interesting. You, you can also think about the drones, all the drones that are out there reseeding things and Um, Just a lot of fun. So that that particularly, I don't know if that anything was mind boggling. One of my favorite companies is Terraformation, though, which is it's like this perfect storm of climate tech stuff. They have solar panels, which they're using to run desalination, which they're using to irrigate native seeds. Right. So they've got native seeds that they're cultivating to reforest uh, desert, desertified microsystems. So like this desert in in Hawaii, actually, you probably don't realize that there are very arid desert areas that are um, being re reforested by terraformation formation um, and these these seeds, these seeds, which are more biodiverse than than others. So it's just a fascinating area. And it's like one of those things like I think we all know these companies, we've all heard of them, but it's a category that unto itself is becoming more important, I think, for for the climate tech space
1: that was so a long answer I, I'm sorry <laughs> no but it was so interesting and it actually gave me my follow-up which is going to be a little technical um no it's it's I see biotech I just assume that nature tech is one and the same do you agree mm-hmm. do you think there is a delineation between the two
0: listen I think that a lot of thing, a lot of the, the in this story is about semantics, right? It's about drawing attention to a category that deserves more investment. So sure, I mean it's kind of the same thing, but it's also um, plays to the fact that some of these biotech companies now have this role to play in really helping nature recover itself um, and be, be able to regenerate. And um, You know, I go back and forth on how much you want technology to be in the way of nature or you know how much you really want to mess with nature too much like these sort of geo engineered things are a little scary to me but there's i mean if you think about it climate um you know the carbon removal technologies are a little bit geo engineering you're taking stuff out of the air so i don't know i mean i go back and forth on on the ethics of using technology to help nature but you know, for me, it's, it's really a semantics thing. So sure, biotech and, and, you know, is part of nature tech is, you know, could it be called biotech? Sure. But that that doesn't really account for the, um, the information gathering parts of nature tech, I think that are super important. So anyway, that's my, that's my theory.
1: I think that's an interesting theory. I would also want to learn more about the monitoring and reporting and verification aspects, which I know you you touch on in your piece, really do impact, you know, the blockchain AI part. Mm-hmm. And then how does that impact the actual on the ground day-to-day business practices of these companies? Do you know yeah. what I mean? You know, how does yeah. everything connect when it seems so large, but it's really so tangential.
0: Yeah, I think the challenge right now is that a lot of this stuff is pilot phase it's in the lab it's in a very small world situation and how do you scale this stuff that's really the important thing and part of this white papers um goal is to get more investors interested in these categories of technology so that they can scale so that they can find that scale so that's kind of that's kind of where we are
1: right now speaking of the white paper you wrote the foreword which <laughs> is so cool
0: what was uh, that like I, I it's I'm just curious. like writing a story honestly but but yeah i mean i think i think one of the reasons i did write the foreword is because i do feel strongly about um i feel strongly about climate tech but i also feel strongly that there is a very important um I mean, there's a lot happening right now with how we value nature. Like, no one really knows. Corporations really don't know how to value nature in their business models. I mean, there are there are some approaches that are developing, but this is this biodiversity and ecosystem regeneration um, mission that we're on is is it's really not it, it it's talked about separately from corporate climate action and carbon emissions reductions, and, and that sort of thing, but it's really related and it's all part of the same problem and it's all, um, you know, all of these solutions are coming to bear and, and we should just be, like I said, um, the, the attention of this piece was just to draw more attention to what's possible. This spring, the WSLA alumni group recognized 11 women at the forefront of the sustainability profession. These leaders have made a difference by advancing new technologies or strategies, by overcoming personal and professional obstacles, and by committing to mentoring other women. They join more than 85 women who have been honored since 2014. I am thrilled to introduce some of the latest inductees here on Green Biz 350. This week, I'm joined by Kath Williams, principal with Kath Williams Plus Associates. Kath was an early leader of the U.S. Green Building Council and later the World Green Building Council. She has helped start many green building councils all over the world in places like India, Taiwan, the United Arab Emirates, El Salvador, and many other countries. Very busy woman. Kath, thank you so much for joining us here on
2: Green Biz350 it's an honor to be with you heather
0: so i have to first ask what inspired you to focus on a career related to environmental sustainability and esg what got you into this field in the first place
2: i came at this really differently than most of my colleagues who are working in green buildings um, for the last 20 years i'm not a designer so i have no background in architecture or engineering And I can't tell anybody how to design, but I had the opportunity in the early 90s to work for Montana State University as the um, assistant to the vice president of research. And we were always looking for money for programs and for people. But we were spending most of the money at the university, particularly in laboratories, uh, on utilities. And so my job was to work around the university to cut down on waste. And it was waste of all kinds of resources, from energy to water to materials. And ultimately, we were chosen as a demonstration uh, University for a green building project in in the mid-1990s, and nobody knew what green building technologies were or what a green building project would look like, and so the vice president decided it would be my job uh, <laughs> to learn what sustainability was and start figuring out how to do this project. And so I ended up, basically because I wanted to keep my job, uh, (laughs) I ended up uh, heading a green building project that was never built but is labeled as the most famous building that was never built because it was off the grid, designed to be off the grid, designed ultimately to be a living building. And I had on my team was Bob Berkebile and Jason McLennan. And both of those two put together the basis for the Living Building Challenge. So we were right at the start of lead, and right at the birth of the Living Building Challenge. And so ultimately, this just seemed to be the right path for me. Um, I live in Bozeman, Montana, where we care about the environment a lot, and we live in harmony for the most part with the environment. So this was more of a natural fit than what I had ever intended to do or my career path that I thought I was going to have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: So you, it became a passion, obviously. Um, You know, how throughout the years, what do you believe has been the most important factor in your success in in, in perpetuating this passion and and, in doing the things that I mentioned in your
2: introduction? Um, That's a really good question. And I do think about that quite a bit um, because I, I guess the idea that I'm a teacher, that I want to help other people learn and I want to to present and be a resource and give resources and share resources because there's so much work to do in sustainability that even as competitive as the marketplace seems to be, there's just so much work to do in sustainability that it cuts across all disciplines and gives opportunities uh, for everybody. And that's in every country. And like when I first started working in 2000 um, in India, um, it wasn't like, I guess I was a cheerleader in lots of ways in that I kept encouraging them and saying, you really don't need Americans to come in here and tell you how to clean up your country or how to do high performance buildings or how to be sustainable. You just need to work together. And that's why I helped put together the India Green Building Council. Because once the council gets started with the focus of what are our priorities in sustainability and our goals and definitely our challenges, um, they can work together and then as I got to the World Green Building Council, it was councils could work with councils, could work with councils. So for me, it and it was always fun, and it's always been challenging and exciting. And every time I think I know what I'm doing, I find out I'm not even close to knowing what I'm doing. Here's the lesson for today. And of course, then that goes across to working with students. I just, I've always enjoyed um, helping students get ahead of everybody else as fast as they can, because that's our future are the students and our kids and things like that. So I've always enjoyed it. I've been very blessed in that I've enjoyed my job. So,
0: so how, how has mentoring that next generation of leadership changed your own outlook? Can you can you get get into that a little bit more deeply? What are you learning as a teacher?
2: Oh, that's a that's like an everyday thing. On every project that I do, I always engage um, students as interns. And I've always believed interns are a valuable resource and therefore should be paid. And so I always have have every intern I've ever had in my office has been a paid intern. And it also teaches them responsibility because they have to show up because they're getting a paycheck. It's not just, I don't feel like coming in today because I'm a volunteer. But what I learned from them is a different perspective on the future, a different perspective on the past, how we've always done things. And they ask really good questions. Of why? Why are you doing it the way you're doing it? Or why is this important? And that comes from, to me, from students and kids of all ages is they say, why? Um, and I go, that's always a good question of why. Well, this is the way we've always done it. The other piece of having students in your office is and working in your office on real projects is that they really seem to um, break down complex issues and complex situations into, isn't this what's really happening? And when they do that, it makes the whole team stop and really think about, Could we do this a different way? And a good example lately was um, I got to work on the American Indian Hall, which is a new building on Montana State University's campus, but it's the home for the Native American studies. And all of the tribes, we have nine tribes in the region that work together on helping with the design of the building and picking materials But most of us and even the tribal elders, they really wanted the building to be like, actually like a museum, is to showcase the past of where the tribes have contributed and what the history of the tribes are. And this would be a prominent building on campus. And this was a place to do it. And the students said, no. We do not want this as a museum. We want this to be home. We want to be able to come home to this building and feel like it's our home on campus. And all of us shut up. (laughs) It was like, whoa, we really didn't think about it that they're 18, 19 years old. And when they come to a university campus, they have no place to go. There is no home. They want their crop pots. They want to be able to hang out. And we actually have built a drum room and we had to cut down some trees on campus. And they actually, the students made the furniture out of the wood from on campus. And we ultimately ended up earning lead platinum with the building because it's energy efficient and water savings, and has magnificent daylight and views. But the, um, they taught us so much and changed the direction where if all of us had done it, it would be another museum.
0: Yep. So I have two more kind of quickish questions for you. What has been your most successful leadership habit or strategy?
2: Listening is I don't come into um, any project, anywhere in the world where I have the answers. And I think, well, I was really honored. One of my favorite honors was to be named to the India Green Building Hall of Fame. And I was the first inductee. And there was an audible gasp in the room when they announced my name. And it was, the reaction was, how can an American woman be recognized in India as the major contributor to changing the way the buildings were designed and built? And obviously, it made me cry. And it's hard for me not to cry when I think about this, because I'm humbled about it. Because all I did was encourage them. All I I did was say you can do it and kept encouraging. And that, I think, is true leadership is when you can stand back and empower and raise up and other people and make them believe in themselves and make them believe that they can be a leader in sustainability, they can be a leader in their community if they're 10 years old, if they're whatever, that they can come from not knowing. And the other leadership quality, which I think the U.S. Green Building Council taught me more than anything was that you organize and you're not there as judges and jury. Not being judgmental. None of us are green. None of us are sustainable. We're all on this path and we can't be judgmental about where anybody is. Um, So we take everybody from where they are and try to lift them up, try to move them along, try to empower them, whatever buzzword you want to use. But it's still the idea that none of us are like ordained as green. So we're not the judges and everybody can move forward and improve. And that's the way I've approached it around the world is like, okay, right now I'm working a lot in Guatemala and we have major problems, um, uh, particularly with waste because the easy way to get rid of the waste is to dump it in a ravine. And there's plenty of ravines. And every other alternative is expensive and there's no market. But that doesn't mean we just continue to dump it in ravines. It <laughs> means we got to get to work and find alternatives. But again, that's exciting. And that's, that's the kind of thing that keeps me interested in doing this uh, forever.
0: Chance, for one final word, Kath, what advice would you give to anyone of any age pursuing a career in sustainability?
2: Is that there's so many avenues that keep a broad perspective on how you can approach it. I love talking to business classes because most people think sustainability has nothing to do with business and it's so intertwined in every business. And the opportunities are in every business to pick a sustainable path or start strategies or make progress. And it's still, I know it seems so dumb to go back to the three-legged stool idea, but it really does work, is that sustainability has to be be balanced and it has to be whatever strategies or progress we make is balanced between caring about the environment, doing what's right for the environment, caring, caring about people and how what we do affects people. And the third thing is, of course, caring about how we do and make, uh, make it sustainable on the profit side. We have to make money. We're not going to be able to sustain ourselves without being able to make money. It has to or make progress if you're a nonprofit, but there's still the financial part. And if any of the three legs of that stool are not balanced, you know what happens. You fall off on the floor.
0: Yep. <laughs> right on yeah. your tokus. For
1: so.
2: sure.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Kath, I have been um, so honored to interview you today. It's been a great conversation. Thank you so much
2: for your time. It's, it's really, I think what you do is important to do it short and sweet, that we get an opportunity to, to learn from each other and listen in short little bites that I think have kernels that are important. Great. Well,
0: you just heard from Kath Williams, principal with Kath Williams Plus Associates. And that is our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com forward slash 350 for our weekly episode rundowns. Hit us up by email at the address 350 at greenbiz.com. We'd like to hear from you. I'd be remiss if I didn't encourage you to sign up for one of our seven newsletters. You can find the subscription links at www.greenbiz.com forward slash newsletters hyphen subscribe or just go to the homepage and hit the subscribe button. Thank you so much to Leah Garden for stepping in to co-host. Joel and I will be back next week with another episode, including updates from Climate Week in New York. Until then, I'm Heather Clancy. Take care and be well. This episode is sponsored by Makersite. Do you still commission consultancies to do your products and lifecycle assessments? It doesn't scale, fails to meet your reporting goals, and takes months? With Makersite, you can switch from months to minutes with their AI-powered LCA engine built for scale and accuracy. For more information, please visit makersite.io. And this episode is sponsored by Sphera. Begin your environmental, social and governance journey, also known as ESG, to drive your organization toward a sustainable future. Learn more at spira.com.